Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shiv. I'm Skip, and today we are thrilled to have Tina Wynn with us. Tina is a staff reporter at The Hive, Vanity Fair's news vertical covering the power players of Silicon Valley, Washington, and Wall Street. She covers American politics, the conservative movement, and the media. Prior to Vanity Fair, Wynn worked at Mediate, The Daily Caller, and The Brazier, where she was nominated for a James Beard Award. Wynn graduated from Claremont McKenna College in 2011 with an honors degree in government. Thank you so much for joining us, Tina. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm super excited. It's been a very long time since I've been in this building. One of the first questions we like to ask our guests is about something we call inflection points, uh, which are basically points in your life where Mm. you've had to pivot or adjust in your personal life or in your professional life. Uh, Could you share a moment with us? Um, That would definitely be the time I got fired straight out of college. It's not a good place to be, especially when you come to a place like Claremont McKenna, where there's so much pressure to succeed. And then you see all your friends go to Deloitte and BCG and you've gotten fired from your first job. So um, I was in DC working at the Daily Caller at the time, and it was a great experience. I ended up meeting a lot of people who I'm still in touch with right now when I cover conservatives. But I was ignominiously fired because the people who ran the Daily Caller realized, wait, you're not really qualified to cover the tech beat. Uh, And I was like, okay, yeah, you're right. Um, So I took about six months of being totally unemployed and applying for jobs and failing before I realized, wait a second, is this the place where I really want to be pursuing my career? I want to be a writer. I want to do journalism, but does it necessarily have to be in Washington, D.C.? And I realized that a lot of the reasons I wasn't happy in D.C. was just because I didn't like the town itself. And I wasn't particularly happy covering politics in the highly partisan lens that people wanted me to cover it in, uh, particularly the right wing media. And so... I decided to put that on hold and real think, you know, maybe I just like writing in general. Uh, thankfully, I remained on pretty good terms with the uh, editor-in-chief of the Daily Caller at the time, one Mr. Tucker Carlson, and he actually gave me a pretty good reference to the place I ended up next, which was the Brazier in New York. And uh, I ended up staying there for two years before going to Mediate because I realized I still love politics. And um, have you guys ever read Mediate at all? Or Okay, yeah, it focuses a lot on the um, news of newsmaking. So cable news, journalism, uh, the occasional politics thing here and there. And uh, I had always wanted to write for The Daily Show and The Colbert Report when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So when I saw an opportunity at Mediate, I was just like, hey, guys, please bring me on board. Please, please, please. And I begged hard enough, so they let me on. But I don't think I would have gotten back to politics if I hadn't, like, taken time to myself and worked a bunch of restaurant jobs and slept terrible hours to realize, you know what, what makes me happy and where can I pursue it? So taking a step back to your time at Claremont McKenna, obviously CMC at the time you were there didn't have a journalism major, but clearly this was something that you always had kind of been interested in. Mm -hmm. So you ended up working at the Claremont Independent, the Student Life, and the Forum. So basically hitting every single one of the on-campus publications that we have and working for all three. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about that experience and what kind of drew you into those organizations? Um, So I was slightly more libertarian back in the day, so the Claremont Independent was a pretty natural draw. And um, the people there at the time were pretty punchy and funny and, One of my good friends, John Clark Levin, was the editor-in-chief for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And the thing is, if you do something, if you're at the Claremont Independent, it's highly politics driven in current events. Um, I did also have a desire to go into to like explore other types of writing. So I ended up being the restaurant critic for the student life at one point. Um, got in trouble a couple times there for some joke columns that w- didn't appear to be jokes to the rest of the public. Um, the forum, I really liked cartooning too, so I dabbled in putting things up on that. Um, I was really, I was also a big fan of the indie comic scene back then, so I was trying to see if I could emulate that style and that kind of humor. So you mentioned you worked at restaurants in the past. You were a restaurant critic for TSL. Now at Vanity Fair, you made a pretty big splash nationwide when you released a review of Trump's restaurant at Trump Tower, and he actually responded to it. Can you go a little bit into how all that came about? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, It's still one of the most mind-boggling experiences of my life, so here we go. Um, Right after Trump was elected, my boss at The Hive suggested that I write a review of Donald Trump's restaurant. And before I start going into that, there's a bit of backstory behind it because uh, Graydon Carter, who was the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair at the time, had a feud with Donald Trump that's gone back for 30 years. Like, it started when Graydon pointed out that Trump had small hands and Trump got mad at that mm-hmm. about that, so he would keep sending Graydon photos of his hands circled in gold Sharpie, saying, see, they're not so small after all. Um, And he also hated the fact that Graydon had a restaurant called the Waverly Inn. It's in the West Village. It's quite nice. It was a big celebrity hotspot, and Trump would always keep tweeting about it, like, Waverly Inn, worst food in the city. And um, Graydon was so happy about it that he put that tweet on his uh, menu for a while. So fast forward to December 2016. Uh, John knew that I had a lot of experience writing about food and also was obsessed with politics. So he went, Tina, why don't you just go to the steakhouse in the bottom of the Trump Tower and see what you can do? And I asked, are you paying for it? He goes, yes. And I'm like, done. I really just wanted to eat a lot of French fries and drink cocktails and have someone else pay for it. Literally, that was my only goal going into it. <laughs> and it turned out it was just awful like soul crushingly depressingly awful and i couldn't really i felt really bad for bringing my coworkers there with me honestly like it was crowded we had to wait for 45 minutes um and the thing that i took away from it was that there were a lot of really good people who worked at that restaurant who really cared about the restaurant um and there were a lot of people there who were trump fans on a pilgrimage and they wanted to have a I, I don't know, the way I put it was a dining experience fit for a president. And it was this collision of what people were able to provide versus what the expectations were that just, like, exploded. And the thing is, I didn't think Trump really cared about that. Uh, and that's I wrote that down. I was somewhat overly descriptive, but that's my thing. And then Trump apparently read it and took it pretty seriously. So he tweeted that Vanity Fair was about to die and that Graydon Carter was going to get fired. I think part of the reason why that article got so much traction was because of your trenchant and incisive writing style and also just the entertaining nature of the article. You were calling dumplings flaccid, (laughs) um, talking about the veneer of the steakhouse and stripping that away. 
Um, is that the kind of approach you take with journalism as a whole, trying to strip back the veneer when you see it in politics, in food, or even sometimes at the intersection of the two, like at the Trump Grill? Uh, yeah, I mean, most of the time it's politics these days, but my biggest specialty, I think, is doing uh, feature profiles and feature articles. So I like my favorite pieces are when I just like dive into an experience or follow a person around um, and just kind of absorb everything that I see and just try to figure out what it says about the people in the place. Um, so one of my favorite pieces ever I'll go. I'll take it from like both sides of the aisle, so people don't think, "Oh, she's out for blood for the blah 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 partisan side." Um, in 2016, I did an article about the headquarters of Bernie Sanders' um, Brooklyn, New York um, outreach, mm-hmm. which is this. It's a freaking warehouse in the middle of the Gowanus Canal, which is a hipster land next to a toxic, super fun site, and. The type of people you would expect would be working there were there. And it was just like this great slice of life into how Bernie Sanders uh, supporters saw themselves at this moment where it wasn't quite clear whether he could win New York primary because that never gets asked during an election cycle. But they were still that devoted and he was still raking in millions and millions and millions of dollars a month. So it was a it was a look into like looking back on it now, I actually think it was a really good way to see exactly why they would remain so anti-Clinton in the months to come. Um, on the other side of it, I once went to Mike Cernovich's. Um, the best way to put it is EDM alt-right bar mitzvah. So, um, do you know who Mike Cernovich is? So he's one of the big um, conspiracy figures online. He promoted Pizzagate. Mm which is, for the listeners, the conspiracy theory that Democrats and Hillary Clinton have a secret pedophile ring underneath a pizza parlor in uh, Washington, D.C., which they do not. Um, but he has a big following online full of like trolls and 4chan types. And he wanted to throw this big event in New York City in order to draw them out and have a good revolutionary time. Um, and I went to that and I got so much crap for it because the first thing I said was the one thing you have to understand about the f- movement formerly known as the alt-right is that they are inherently haltingly lame. Um, he read that out loud on his, he read the entire thing out loud on his Periscope. And, uh, I got slammed on Twitter for that, but at the same time, it was true. I mean, these are Pepe cartoonists Mm -hmm. at a EDM nightclub in Hell's Kitchen called Freak. (laughs) It's spelled with a Q. So you mentioned you got flack for it on Twitter and going back to the Trump article, there was definitely a response then. In your time as a journalist, how have you dealt with the blowback, the reactions, because you covered some pretty contentious topics, and you still are covering some pretty contentious topics right now. How have you dealt with that? Has it been a big problem, or...? Um, in the traditional sense, where you, if you ask most journalists, it really hasn't. Um, people have tried to dox me in the past, as in, like, publish my home address and send spam slash worse to me. Um, that's never really been a problem. I know that Vanity Fair will have my back if anything ever goes to crap like that. Um, in terms of being criticized on Twitter, I am I have expected that's this point. All I know is that like I have done everything in my power to make sure that what I'm putting out is true. And I and that means sometimes going against my own bosses and saying, nope, 
it's not like this. We ha- This is what I have experienced, and this is what I am 100% in my experience know to be true. If there's something wrong, please correct me. And I take that tract with like all of my sources as well. They tend to suspect me a little more just because I come from Vanity Fair, but that's kind of the... That's the challenge of it. Like, how do you get someone who's so, like, is opposed to everything you are as in your livelihood to be to trust you? Going off that, one of your roles at The Hive is keeping track of the media. Mm-hmm. And you're known as kind of tracking the right wing in particular. So one question I want to ask is, where do you get your own news? And how closely do you monitor some of these right wing publications? How far down the rabbit hole do you go? Very far. Very, very far down the rabbit hole. I'm in... Uh, I'm in the upside down, basically. Um, no, I tend to get my news. Oh dear, um, my news diet. Yeah, I'll like visit the New York Times and I'll visit Breitbart and I'll visit Drudge. Um, it's they're all really the same news, except that the headlines are completely different. That's kind of the trick you need to understand when you're looking at um, when you're like exploring partisan media. Mm-hmm. Because everyone has a take, and everyone has their own spin on what the facts are. Uh, there are very few instances where you go on Breitbart or something where they're not reporting on things that where they like go into full-on conspiracy land. They just take a news item, and then they'll put a really angry, salacious headline on it. And one of my favorite things to spot on the Breitbart front page is every time they say the word but as a qualifier. Like, um... Um... Yeah, something like, I don't know, Steve Bannon loses, like, Steve Bannon is quasi-responsible for Roy Moore losing in Alabama, but, but look at what the Democrats were doing and putting all their money and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, it's a, it diverts people into a different area of thought and of um, inquiry and argument, if that makes sense. Yeah, so there's obviously a fragmentation of media, which also plays into the political sphere today with increasing partisanship and things like that. You talked about toxic politics and you obviously cover the media. Do you see a shift happening in the journalism industry with how things are becoming more partisan and things like that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there was initially a period, there was a period of time when conservative political journalists would hang out with more mainstream slash liberal political journalists and they drink together they'd be kind of like oh i disagree with you you neocon shell or whatever i really truly do think that if donald trump hadn't come along there would be a similar vibe going on really? maybe a little bit more acrimonious but they would everyone would still get drunk together mm-hmm. but the thing is when you have a New, when you have a form of media that is predicated on the belief that the liberal media and the elites are out to get you and Donald Trump happens to be the guy best representing your populist conservative right-wing revolution, it's ride or die at that point. You have to back Donald Trump. And if anyone – and if your liberal counter or mainstream counterparts are like, wait, why the hell are you backing Donald Trump? You just kind of double down. I saw this happen with a lot of people I know. And it's, it's been like interesting to keep talking with them at this point, I'll, I'll say. So the rancor has definitely been building in the lead up to this Brett Kavanaugh nomination. And as we record today, it's September 27th. We're actually in the middle of the hearings as we record. 
What's it been like covering Kavanaugh, and where do you place this in its spot in history? Oof. Wow, I literally just got here, guys. <laughs> um, very hefty. No, but that's why Claremont McKenna is the best school. Um, huh. It's one of the, I think it's far more bitter and partisan than a Supreme Court nomination should ever be. And it's, not, it's gone beyond partisan at this point. It's enveloped Me Too politics. It's Lisa Murkowski, I think, put it best when she said that, and I'm just paraphrasing here, this is less about a, the man's qualifications to be a judge, and it's more a referendum on whether women have the right to be heard and and believed. And that's a really heavy question. And I don't think anyone's really ever brought that into a Supreme Court hearing or a nominate or any sort of Senate nomination process. And for once, given weight to what the woman was saying. Like, Anita Hill was pretty, disgustingly, but pretty easy to brush off. And uh, the way that she was treated by the white Democrats who were questioning her is atrocious. But now that now that public opinion is on the side of the women, and even the, even the Republicans are trying to maneuver around how not to directly say Christine Ford is lying or Deborah Ramirez is lying. That's been fascinating. And I think we're just I think we're literally in untested waters here, which is why everyone's reacting as extremely as they are, Mm -hmm. as extreme as they are. One interesting point for me was you mentioned things are changing and like how the scene of journalism is changing or how people believe different things. Have you had to shift how you write as a journalist in light of this kind of fracturing environment? Um, if you do, you mean by um, shifting my tone or shifting my analysis or? Well, whatever it may be. <laughs> um, well, I started at Vanity Fair one day before Trump announced he was running, and I'm literally the day before he announced. And I came from media, and we had more of a quick hit, funny thing, uh, make a joke type of style. And I thought I was going to be taking that to Vanity Fair. And when Trump started becoming a serious political candidate and he started unearthing all of this ugliness in political rhetoric that we hadn't seen before, I really – I was not at a place that would have let that slide. And I still kind of dabble in that t- type of like silly tonal humor, but considering the topic at hand, I think it was necessary, and I am, and I decided full stop to take a more serious tact and more analytical. And it's a good thing, just not because like, man. It's not just that it's appropriate for the subject matter, but it also bolsters your own reputation as a reporter and someone who can provide a sober, non-sardonic non view of things. And honestly, that's I am more than happy to do that. So unfortunately, we only have time for one more question, and it's a question we ask all of our guests. The question is, what is your personal definition of success, and how would you help students in defining success for themselves? Huh. I feel too young <laughs> to be able to answer this question. Jeez. Um, never be complacent. I still think there's so much for me to learn and so many other things I could be doing. And 
journalism and writing has it's my soul it's my life I don't think I'll ever give that up but being successful I think is when you feel okay but want to keep going up if you if you reach that point then there's clearly then you've clearly done something right and you've got the resources and the experience and the connections and the like whatever it takes for you to reach that next step and that's a hard place to be mm-hmm. there's a really really difficult thing to get to the point where people will support you in whatever it is you want to do yeah definitely and it took me a really long time to earn that, but I have that at Vanity Fair, and for that I'm extremely grateful, and I want to, you know, take advantage of that. I know a lot of students will take that to heart. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Tina, again for joining us, and to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.